I am thrilled with the Christmas sermon series topic that I'll be preaching through for the next several weeks. This first Sunday is announced the following way, the first Sunday of Advent, hope and promise through the patriarchs. If you were to look at the high holy calendars for the churches, the high churches, you would discover that all of them are processing through very similar topics this morning, and I felt led to move in that direction. So this morning, I'm going to be talking about incarnation, hope, hope. But before I get there, I would be spiritually remiss if I did not mention UVA football. So UVA football ended up winning yesterday. Glory be to God in the highest from whom all blessings flow. I have a very dear friend of mine. He's one of the closest friends that God has ever blessed me with who attends City. And he gave me fair warning. He was, he's a wise man. And I really do go to him for many things. He's a, a peer in age, but extremely wise. And he advised me to be very careful how I announced UVA's football win. And the reason why is, and he's right, there's a lot of Virginia Tech alumni that are here in the room. <laughs> his daughter and son included, they went the way of all flesh and chose Virginia Tech over UVA. So I need to be very careful with how I say this. And it is true that more of the young people from city are actually going to Tech now over UVA, so I need to be very careful with how I'm going to phrase what I'm going to say next. UVA football won yesterday. Friday, sorry, I keep saying yesterday, but it's so fresh and close that... <laughs> UVA football won yesterday, actually, three to zero. Soccer, that's right. They beat St. John's three to zero. And that's Trinity, as you know, three. And they'll be playing in the lead eight this coming Friday evening at UVA. Now, you will notice that when you say the word football, if you head south of the American border, you will discover very quickly that football means something else. And me as a huge soccer fan, I love to view football as just this soccer round ball thing. Sorry for those of you who love regular football. But what you'll discover quickly is understanding of a word is huge. It's extremely important. And what I want to do this morning is we're going to focus on the word incarnation. What does it mean? Also, what does it not mean? And here's how I would like for us to set this up so that as we move forward towards what the incarnation is, and I'm well aware, we have people here in the auditorium, you are a not yet follower of Jesus. 
You've been checking out faith. You've been looking over the wall at faith. Maybe someone here has been inviting you. Or maybe you're just listening to this sermon and you have never been to city. But I want to talk about incarnation because incarnation is the fundamental, absolute foundation of the Christian faith. It sits at the very bedrock of what we believe. And in order to kind of set this up, what we need to understand is you exit the Older Testament. You exit through the book of Malachi. If you're Italian, it's Malachi. But as you exit the Older Testament, the last book is the book of Malachi. And what Malachi lets us know is that even though we've met some incredible people You have met Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have met Joshua and Caleb and Moses. You've met these incredible men and especially women of faith. You've met them. It's been amazing. But even though you've met these people, these men and women of faith, as you exit the Older Testament, there is a sadness. And the book of Malachi uploads this to us. That Israel is not what she is to be. And that God has pending judgment coming to her. And there is wickedness in the land of Israel. But in the midst of that, God brings these little glimmers of hope. You read about the first one in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And here's what the prophet brings. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. You see, in the midst of sin, in the midst of disappointment, God begins to speak through the final prophet in the Older Testament. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, here's what the prophet writes. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. But it's not just Malachi that's been saying this. There are other prophets earlier in the Older Testament that are speaking in similar tones. This one is with joy and excitement. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and verses 6 through 7. Here's what is reported. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, God's going to do this and nothing can stop it. Even in the book of Isaiah, when things aren't going well, there's an announcement, something that brings hope, and it's a mention of a person who will show up. 
Further and deeper into the book of Isaiah, this verse is attributable to Easter, but it still must be read. The one I just read is attributable to Christmas, but the next one is attributable to Easter. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity and your iniquity. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what we find in the prophet Isaiah is there is one who will show up and there will be joy and excitement and rejoicing. And there will also be incredible suffering and deep burdens and darkness. And on him, the sins of all humankind will be laid. And then in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's a verse that all of us are familiar with. Here the prophet again brings hope and announces this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 picks up on this as Matthew comes straight out of the gate in the Newer Testament announcing that what has been prophesied is now here. Matthew 1.23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those, by the way, those words are taken straight out of Isaiah 7.14. And Matthew, as he looks at the birth of Jesus, makes the announcement that what Isaiah has said would happen is now fulfilled. Emmanuel, God is truly with us. But you know, oftentimes, we look at all these Older Testament prophecies and we look at the people and the contemporaries of Jesus' day and we say, how could they not have figured this out? Well, it's pretty simple. Because some of them were not looking for these prophecies to be fulfilled. And isn't it always easier to look back at something and figure out what it is instead of in the midst of when it's actually happening. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? Where you look back in the rearview mirror and you go, oh my goodness, that is what was happening. I would encourage you, if you're fascinated by looking back into the Older Testament, get Richard Hayes' book, Reading Backwards. He was the head of the religion department at Duke University. We won't hold that against him. He was absolutely brilliant, still is, even though he's working for the blue devil. What he writes is still so true. But then again, what you have to understand is at the end of the Older Testament, what you discover is that Malachi reminds us again of what all the prophets, prophets and patriarchs of old have been telling us is that even though it's not the way everyone thought it would be, that there would be a person 
who would show up. And when he came, people would say, God is with us. And that changes everything. Can you imagine, though, you actually end the Older Testament thinking this. We have met incredible people. And they're all awesome until they weren't. You had Moses. The guy's amazing till he wasn't. And you had David, who was the ultimate and still beloved king of Israel. And man, he's a shepherd. He's a guy after God's own heart. He's awesome until he wasn't. And you see that over and over again in the Older Testament. And that's really what Malachi is pointing to, is all of these amazing people. They were awesome until they weren't. But embedded in the Older Testament prophets and in the stories of the patriarchs, they speak of one who would come and he would do it right. And Matthew picks up on this and says, here he is. Here he is. You know, if you were to read in the Newer Testament, you would discover very quickly that there's something odd. Only two of the four Gospels mention Jesus' birth. Isn't that fascinating? But always remember this, all four focus major, major chapters and lengthy chapters on Easter. Only two mention the nativity as we know it. Matthew mentions Joseph, and Luke brings us Mary. The other two Gospels, when you first read them, it would appear as though they're silent about the nativity. Mark definitely is. But when you read the Gospel of John, you pick up John's nativity narrative. It doesn't involve Mary and Joseph. It doesn't involve a long journey it doesn't involve no room in the inn. It doesn't involve any of that. But here's John's nativity story, and I want us to catch it because it's so key. John, in writing about Christmas, writes this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. Verse 14, the word became what? Flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What you could not know in English is John 1.14 is where the word incarnation actually comes from. Because for centuries, the only language that many people would have read the Bible in was Latin. And in John 1.14, the word incarnation is used for that understanding of the word becoming flesh. If you would look at the Latin word, you would discover that incarnation is a simple word. In, this is deep, in, the in part of incarnation means in. 
Then there's caro, which means flesh. So incarnate means in the flesh. Incarnation means to be made in flesh. Or as a dear friend of mine that I knew at Princeton Seminary when I was working at the university, he would say this, God with meat on. God with meat. And if you speak Spanish, it goes this way, con carne. It's the best way to have everything with meat. But what do we mean when we say incarnation? We mean this. Fully God, fully human, two natures in one person. Fully God, fully human, two natures in one person. That's what we mean by the incarnation. It's absolutely stunning that Christians for 2,000 years have come to put their faith, hope, and trust in this, that God, who was the Word, it was verbal, somehow somewhat amorphic. You couldn't see it, really. You couldn't really touch it, really. Now, God literally takes on human form and comes into creation and is fully God, fully human, two natures in one person. Sometimes when you describe something, the best way to describe it is to describe it by what you don't mean. Here's what the incarnation is not. It is not reincarnation. It's not. Reincarnation is not a biblical concept. It's found nowhere in Scripture at all. As a matter of fact, when we look at incarnation, every prophet brings that with a concept of hope for your life now. Reincarnation lacks any definitive hope. The fact that right here, right now, incarnation means there's hope available to your life. Reincarnation means that you will have to come back again and again and again and again with some slim hope of ever getting it all right. Whereas incarnation has within it hope for everyone. Everyone. Again, I want to say this. Reincarnation is not a biblical concept at all. What our hope is in, what our blessed hope is in, is what's called the resurrection. It's not that we would come back again and do life over, no. Our blessed hope, our hope is in what the Apostle Paul calls the resurrection of these mortal bodies. These bodies which are filled with death and corruption. I'm not trying to depress you, I'm just being biblically honest. The idea is, is that this body is corrupt. This body is not incorruptible. This body, the Bible says, is corrupting. And here's what Scripture teaches me. 
is that the ultimate victory for you and for me in Christ is that there will come a day where your body and my body will be resurrected and in that resurrection body, you and I will have new bodies that are incorruptible, that mortality cannot touch. That's the blessed hope. And you would say, but I thought it was heaven. Oh, it is. But your body as it now sits cannot survive in heaven. Your body is corrupted. Look at your neighbor. Tell them, your body's corrupted. (laughs) Ask anyone over 50. We will tell you, my body's corrupted. I can feel it. I pulled a hamstring cheering for UVA. My goodness, the body's corrupted. But you see, when we begin to talk about the incarnation, it's not reincarnation. Our hope is in the incarnation of Christ. My blessed hope is that this body will be resurrected to new life, not to come back and live it all over again, no. This body will be resurrected so that I can eternally live in a place where there is no corruption and mortality is no more. This body could never survive there. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for the perishable must clothe itself in imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now what you have to know is, Jesus Christ came into this world as the incarnate God. He is the incarnation of the invisible God. And on the third day, death could not hold him. And he was resurrected to new life with a new body that was incorruptible. It was incorruptible. And it could live forever and ever. Because he has done it, so will I. When I put my faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, his resurrection becomes my resurrection. And the older I get, the more I look forward to a new body. I look forward to it. I'm going to actually ask Jesus if I can help him design my new body. Now, when we think about the incarnation, we need to understand about putting feet to our faith. The incarnation is not some abstract idea, it's real. You have to ask yourself the question, why the incarnation? What is behind God's action? Why did God do what God did? Why? Why does he spend the Older Testament with these little blurbs of hope from so many prophets that even though everyone had failed, someone will show up. And when they'll do, and when they accomplish God's best, there's going to be hope for anyone through him. Why? Well, again, sometimes the best way to explain something is to say what it isn't. 
I thought a great analogy for what it is not, what the incarnation is not, is a movie that I saw the year after I graduated from high school in 1983. It's called Trading Places. Anyone ever see the movie with Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, Trading Places? If you didn't, you're not missing much. (laughs) But those were two of the hugest actors of my just post-high school experience, so I went to see the movie. And in the movie, what you discover is there's a social experiment. It's what the movie's all about. Two extremely wealthy brothers, Mortimer and Randolph Duke. Don't you love those names? Mortimer and Randolph Duke are extremely wealthy. And they have a guy that works for them, and that's Dan Aykroyd, and his name is Winthrop. Love these names. And they determine on a $1 bet, they're going to trash his life. And they're going to take a street urchin whose name is Billy Ray Valentine. That's Eddie Murphy. And what they're going to do is take a social experiment. They're going to take this guy Winthrop from the very top. They're going to convict him of a false crime. They're going to kick him out. They're going to completely bankrupt him and watch what happens. It's a social experiment. And then they're going to take a guy from the very bottom, Eddie Murphy, this guy Billy Ray Valentine, and they're going to groom him through the company And they're going to see through this social experiment how they can manipulate someone who's at the very bottom and bring them to the top. I don't want to spoil it for you. But Eddie Murphy is hiding in the restroom and he overhears Mortimer and Randolph Duke talking about their bet. And in that moment, he reaches out to Dan Aykroyd and the whole thing kind of loops around and they get the better of the Duke brothers. But what I can tell you is this, is that the incarnation is not a social experiment. It's not God seeing what will happen if he takes his son from the very top, from sitting on the throne of heaven and setting him down in earth and then watching and observing this social experiment to see what happens. What happens to Dan Aykroyd in that movie is horrific. He goes from the very top to the very bottom, and he becomes like an animal. It's actually horrific if you think about it. But here in the scriptures, this is not a social experiment at all. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 tell us clearly that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew. And Paul writes to the church in Philippi as he challenges them on their relationships with each other. He says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what's quoted next is by and large a hymn, a worship chorus that was sung in the first century church. We're literally getting to look into the first century hymnal. Paul quotes from it in verses 6 through 8. Here's what he writes. And imagine them singing with electric guitars and electric piano and drums and all the rest. This was a worship song. Who being in the very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, becoming made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we have to understand, this was not a social experiment at all. This was the divine mission of God that Jesus agreed to. And when the Trinity came together before time ever began, this plan was set in motion. And the prophets spoke about it of old. The patriarchs patriarchs told stories about it. And Jesus here, we know, agreed that this was his mission to redeem humankind. Again, God's audacious claim is that he has now become flesh and God has literally walked among us. Fully God, fully human, two natures found in one person. The other question would be why again? Why did Jesus do this? The writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 says this, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Please understand this. Please know this. That God, God is omniscient. Omniscient means he, he gets all the facts right. But in the incarnation, it's not just the facts anymore. God has literally stepped into this world and now it goes way beyond just the facts. God in God's self has experienced suffering. God within God's self has experienced temptation. And the writer of Hebrews said, that's why he came. You have flesh and blood. I have flesh and blood. That's why God out of love took on flesh and blood as well. I want to tell you why I'm a Christian. I'm going to tell you why. I had grown up in an unchurched family. We never went to church. My mother threw a friend, very fascinating story, but my mother's friend, who was dying of MS and was a chain smoker, started to tell my mother about Jesus. Before long, my mom began to take us to church. My dad didn't go, but me and my two older brothers did. And I went and listened for about eight months to nine months. 
I was a preteen boy living a very isolated life on a farm. And I found that church was one place that I felt loved and accepted and there was some camaraderie and it was a good experience. But the talk of Jesus was very different for me. I'd never heard it before. Yet I could remember thinking about the sermons that I was hearing. There came a day when I was a preteen boy. I'll never forget it. It was after all the winter wheat had been cut. And I went for a walk in the field. And when I went for a walk in the field, I began to think about all these sermons that I'd been hearing about Jesus. I had watched hippies all around me being transformed by the love of Jesus. And by the way, if a hippie can be transformed, anyone can. Because I had short hair. There was hope for me. But I remember walking those wheat fields, and as I did, I was pondering the sermons that I had heard. And here's the one fact, the tipping point fact that made me become a Christian. It was this, that God stepped into the world, and when he did, he suffered. If Jesus had not suffered, I'm out. I want no part of it. Because that means that God is involved in this world where there's suffering, but suffering, let me put it this way, his son was too good to suffer. And my life as a preteen boy had tons of suffering, tons of it. But when I recognized that God came in the incarnation, and when Jesus stepped into the world, he didn't come into the world and wasn't born in a palace. He was born on a farm like the one where I lived. He was placed in a manger. Man, I've seen more mangers than I could care to ever tell you about. But it dawned on me that Jesus suffered. The incarnation of God suffered. And if he suffered, I'm in. If he would have avoided the suffering, I'm out. And what's amazing about so many of the passages that speak about the incarnation, they speak on suffering. As a matter of fact, Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to come in flesh and blood. Why? So that he could suffer and be tempted just like you and like me. Why does the incarnation give us hope? It gives us hope because God came in the flesh. And God knows. God truly, truly knows. God came in the flesh and suffered. And suffered the most horrific death humankind has ever manufactured. And yet in the midst of that, he still forgave, he still loved, and he did it not for himself, but for you and for me. What we mean by the incarnation is this, God with us, God with you, God with me. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? As we stand together. I cannot conclude this sermon 
without asking all of us to close our eyes, but leave our hearts open. I know that the incarnation is an audacious claim. I know that it is. But it is the bedrock of everyone who follows Jesus that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. If you're here this morning and you've been checking out faith in Jesus, you've been considering who Christ is, I want you to know that that actual reality of Christ coming into the world is for you. But that action must be accepted by faith. It's something that you and I must move towards by faith and open up our hearts to it. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are God in the flesh, that you are God incarnate, that you came into this world and you suffered and you died so that in you I could find life and I could find resurrection hope and I could find a peace that surpasses all understanding, that in you I find forgiveness for my sin. If that's you, I'm gonna ask that you would open up your heart to Jesus in this moment, that you would give your heart to him, that you would find hope in him, that the incarnation would speak to you and that you would receive it as the answer for your soul. And I pray this. And I believe for this in Jesus' name. Amen.